Well, I appreciate, Butch, uh, you sharing some thoughts. Those are serious questions that we are kind of asking as we go along this summer. What are the things that help you feel close to God? When do you feel most at peace? And uh, today we pick up on uh, this series that we're calling Press Play. And uh, hopefully you hear this as an invitation into a way of life, a way of being, a way of thinking about your vacation maybe as it's coming up. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I get done with a vacation, it feels like I should have just stayed at home and take a, taken a deep breath, uh, you know, as you're like trying to get places and, you know, fussing at the kids or, you know, uh, what, whatever. Uh, or just in the regular flow of life as we think about the anxieties and the complexities that seem to just be all around us we wanna give us a way of thinking about how to navigate those things as the people of God. I hope you hear this as an invitation today. In fact, I wanna extend the words of Jesus uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 11, and this is the message paraphrase of the Bible. I encourage you to listen for a word or phrase that sticks out to you today. Are you tired? Jesus asks, worn out, burned out on religion, come to me, he says. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. If you were to pick a word or phrase out of that, what stuck, stuck out to you? Just let's like throw a few out there, be brave. What word or phrase did sort of hit home with you? That was a lot of one time, so let's try it again. Over here, who said something? Unforced, okay, over here. Worn out, tired, freely, live freely, rhythms of grace, rest. So clearly, we're hitting, Jesus is hitting a nerve here, right? And, um, you know, honestly, I read this next piece out of my morning devotion uh, this morning, and, and it just fits so well with the whole series, I wanted to throw this in. Uh, this is from uh, a book by Walter Brueggemann. He's, he says this, Sabbath is the refusal to let one's life be defined by production and consumption and the endless pursuit of private well-being. And that's what this series is about. We're not going to let our lives be defined by what the world tells us it needs to be, they need to be defined by. We're gonna work against that. In fact, Walter Brueggemann's book, the title of that book is this, Sabbath as resistance. And I don't know if you've ever thought about leisure as an act of resistance, as rest and renewal and recreation, as the way we push against those forces that will keep us tired, keep us worn down, keep us all caught up in the anxiety around us, caught up in the complexity of life. And that is the point of this series. We are pushing against that. We are going to take an active stance against it but maybe not in the way that you think, not with picket signs, not with having arguments with each other about who's right and who's wrong, not that people are doing that, but through active and intentional acts of resistance and rest and peace. Maybe you've never thought of it this way. Have you ever thought of enjoying God 
in the simplest of ways as a way of pushing against those forces that keep us stuck. For at least some of us, the complexities of life are weighing us down. That's why we're, we're, that's why we're talking about this summer. And we desperately need a simplicity, a golden thread that runs through all of life that, that helps it all hold together. And hear the good news this morning. That is the very thing God offers. This is the invitation of Jesus himself. This is the work of the Spirit in your life and in mine that we would find our deep contentment in him. And so as we get going this morning, I found this prayer as well. And we're gonna weep prayer throughout the morning I thought I might offer it to us as I get started. So would you just uh, find yourself in God's presence, take a deep breath in and pray with me. Lord, I come to you for a deep rest today. I spend so much of my life dissatisfied, wanting for more stuff, more money, more friends, more applause, more miracles. Today, I put away my superhero cape, and I thank you very simply that, that because I have you, I have everything I will ever truly need. Amen. In this simplicity, uh, we, we find the need for a connection to God in an ongoing way, a, a need to kind of let everything and its complexity fall away and find out and stay connected to what is real important. I love this poem by Wendell Berry. Uh, it is uh, called The Peace of Wild Things. Anybody recognize that, that, this poem? Let me read it to you. He says, when despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life may be and what my children's lives may be, I go and I lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with the forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water. I feel above me the day blind stars waiting for their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. We like to think that that freedom comes through the accumulation of things. So sort of the American narrative is that the more options we have, the more stuff we have, the more free we will be. But there is a certain simplicity to living that we all need to find uh, and, and stay in touch with. In a world that is plagued by complexity, we think about this, we overthink, we overcommit, we overspend, we overexaggerate, we overextend, and then because of that we overfunction, amen? Like there is some version of that going on in all of us. Our culture worships at the altar of pushing life to the limits. And about a year, a year ago, about a decade ago, we, we, we coalesced around a, world, a word. I wanna, I wanna maybe draw our attention to that and, and think about it for a second. It's actually a German word. Uh, it is a prefix, and I wanna put it on the screen. It is Uber. Now, the, the, there are two ways of thinking about Uber. The one, I think, is why we named the rideshare place, uh, you know, company uh, startup after it, which is, being a superlative, an example of its kind or, or class, super. It's, it's a, one of the best of, of, a, of a thing, right? But it's the second part of that definition that I want us to think about this morning, which is this, to an extreme, to an excessive degree. 
As we think about the way we overthink, overspend, over, over, over Uber uh, life, that Uber life that we, we sort of all get drawn into whether we want to or not, it, could that be an explanation for why we feel so taxed and tired? Like we're always taking life to the extreme. Let me, let me give you some examples. One of the first is silly, uh, perhaps, Starbucks. Starbucks, now listen, I'm not gonna say too much against Starbucks, okay? Um, Starbucks proudly advertises, uh, advertises a choice of 80,000 different drinks. How many of you have your one drink at Starbucks? Go ahead, confess. Confession's good for the soul, right? I do, right? 80,000 different combinations. If you tested every single coffee drink available to you at Starbucks and you did that two a day, do you know how long it would take you? 109 years. That's a lot of options. That's, that's uber options, that's uber caffeinated, right? But what psychologists have told us is that the more options we have, actually the less satisfied we are. What if you're missing out? You've gotten to 100 drinks, but the 101st one is your drink and you didn't know it. The more options we have, the more we are prone to think that we have missed something. And actually, the fewer options we have, the more then we'll blame the people who don't give us better options. Isn't that funny? Like if you have just a few options and you, know, you go to the, the, the restaurant and you say, do you have Diet Coke? And they say, no, uh, is Diet Pepsi okay? And you're like, mm, no, no. That's their fault, right? If you go to the restaurant and you say, do you have sweet tea? And they say the worst thing that you can ever say, which is no, but you can put some sugar in it. And everybody in the South feels a disturbance in the force, right? <laughs> no, you can't. That's their fault. If you have 109 uh, years worth of options, you will feel the stress of it. Too many options causes stress and anxiety for us. Just a way of thinking about the world that we're living in. And keeping up with that all, all obviously has a financial component. And this is something for us to be aware of too. Pastor Joe sent this uh, to us and trying to you know, keep our uh, finger on the pulse of what's going on around us. Uh, uh, Peter Schiff uh, uh, tweeted this, that in April of this year, credit card debt went up dramatically in one month. It was the second highest jump in a single month. And in that month alone, in April, we added an ad additional $17.8 billion as a country to our credit card debt. That was the second highest month. You wanna know when the first highest month was? The month before that, March, when it went up by $25.6 billion. So the, the, the total amount of credit card debt in the United States, you wanna guess what that number is? $841 billion. Could this be a source of stress for some of us? Probably so. And of course, the concern in, in times like these, in times of inflation, is that people are putting basic needs on credit cards, either that they are strapped already and then that's the way to, to uh, handle the, the, the stress of some basic needs. And I'm, I'm certain that's, that's, that's going on. But I think we should be equally concerned about the ways that that debt has to do with um, keeping up with a set of expectations, that Uber spending, Uber resourced way of, of living, that our debt would keep us keeping up with the Joneses and buying things for status and accumulating things that we don't need. 
And, um, you know, we have a sort of, as a culture, of a, a way of kind of pushing that off to the fringe. There's somebody, somebody, a name for somebody who has too much stuff and who's dying underneath the weight of that stuff. And we have reality shows that are about those people. What do we call them? Hoarders, right? But could that perhaps be a way of deflecting from the ways we all are doing this? Well, at least we're not like them. But the truth is, perhaps, that many of us are feeling the burden of the weight of all of our stuff, and we don't know how to break the cycle. And it gets worse. The pressure mounts. There's stress. There's fatigue. We have to keep track of and watch over and have some kind of warranty plan on every new thing that we get, and it adds up the inner turmoil that we feel and the thing, the stress that we're trying to medicate or alleviate gets worse as we try. Jesus warns us against this. He tells a story. And I thought this would be a, you know, a helpful way of thinking about what we don't want to do. It's from Luke 12. And um, it is the story of, uh, of someone who comes to Jesus with, with a question. And so let's pay attention to the question. Let's pay attention to the response of Jesus And then let's pay attention to the story that Jesus tells. So someone in the crowd, this is verse 13, chapter Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother. Now, like, let's stop there. Have you ever heard a sermon that was for somebody else, right? Jesus, tell my brother, which is the first warning sign that something's going to go right. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So what's the, the man's motivation He's trying to sort out a family dispute. They're arguing over stuff. That's not, it's not, not going well. Jesus replies, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Uh, so uh, a little bit of a firm rejection, right? And then he said to him, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Uh, now the man is really called out, right? In front of the, the crowd, essentially, And Jesus gets to the point immediately, be on your guard. Life does not consist in that uber way of thinking, the abundance of possessions. And then he tells them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Notice it doesn't say someone who was struggling now has some prosperity. No, this is the This is someone who has a lot already, and that's the setup, which is not bad. But then he thought to himself, and we get the inner picture of what's going on in the man's mind in this story, which is great. In fact, in one of the paraphrases of scripture, uh, it, it says, the man said to himself, self, here's what we're going to do. And that's what Jesus does here. He gives us the picture of what the man is thinking. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. So is the question that he didn't have barns in the first place? No, he has barns. He's gonna build uber ones. He's gonna uberfy this. He's gonna build bigger ones. And then I will store my surplus grain. This is, again, how he's dealing with so much extra. And I'll say to myself, and then, okay, then I'm good, basically. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. He is talking about the way in which we try to secure ourselves through this excessive way of life. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, meaning you just don't know when when we're gonna go. And essentially this man 
planned very poorly because he's not going to experience any of that that he has stored up. And then what will, who, what will you get? Who will get for what you prepare for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich to God. So is Jesus against wise investing? Is that, is that the critique here? Is Jesus against planning for the future? Is Jesus against having a retirement account? No, I don't think so. But I think Jesus might be speaking to the attempt that we make to secure our lives through the endless acquisition of external security. Jesus, I think, perhaps is exposing the lie that more is always more. And what we read from Philippians 4, what we heard this morning already, is just the opposite of that. It is Paul's lived experience of something different. And Philippians, in general, is a book that we love to go to. It is set in the context of relational harmony. There's no beef. It is one of the rare books in the, in the New Testament where Paul writes a letter, and it's not because there is something that needs to be worked out. It is because everything has been sort of worked out right, uh, and the, the connection he has with the people at Philippi is close, and he's, he's writing them a thank you letter. And the sub-theme of Philippians is contentment and how we get there in our relationship with God and through Christ and with each other. And so near the end of the book, Paul talks about how he has gotten to where he has gotten. And he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He's not saying this, in other words, because I'm sitting in a prison cell and I might not make it. That's not the motivation, even though that's the context. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, I've, for I've learned to be what? Content. I want you to hold on to that word for a second. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know through lived experience, not academically, but I know through lived experience what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, and I've learned the secret of being what? Content, there it is again, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. That word content, uh, in, in Greek, it translates, it's the, this is the only place it's used in the New Testament, by the way, uh, it translates as self-sufficiency. But if you step back, we would say, well, it's not really self-sufficiency, it's God's sufficiency, but within, within the person, within ourself, it's an inward thing. And so I worked this week to figure out how to translate that word, to, to give us a word that gets at what it's talking about. And I want to invent a word with you this morning. And I want you to tuck it in your back pocket and carry it around with you for a while. And I want you to pull it out anytime you feel that, that need to play into that uber way of life, more is more is more is more. I want you to have this word. I want you to take a deep breath and pull up this word, enoughness. It's a pretty sophisticated word, isn't it? But I think this is what God is offering us. I think this is perhaps the answer to so much of the anxiety around us. It is underneath the complexity and, um, and stress that we feel, our need for enoughness. It's the very thing that God offers. 
Enoughness is the, the most accurate antonym to that stockpiled, build bigger barns way of life. Enoughness captures the opposite of trying to secure our lives through outward sufficiency. It is instead discovering an inner adequacy. So we could call it lots of words. You could have said peace, but you know that word already. We could have said shalom, which sounds biblical, but is basically peace or wholeness or balance or simplicity. And you can track down, read about simplicity. Simplicity is a spiritual practice, a, a spiritual principle, but it ultimately means enoughness. That in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is all that is needed. And then that has been extended to you. And that becomes the driver then. It's not just that you know this, but then you begin to act out of it. That sense of scarcity, scarcity and stress and anxiety and ugh, ugh, becomes grounded in something and then dispersed by God's enoughness. It is no surprise that the book of Philippians draws people back again and again and again because it is a book marked by inner enoughness. No longer trying to see how many balls we can keep in the air at one time. And Paul, it is worth knowing, noting, makes this point throughout the book of Philippians despite circumstances. Because this is a factor that is not dependent on external circumstances. You can have it when things are going really well and you can have it when things are going very bad. And that's his point. In fact, let me put up some of the examples throughout the book. He says, whether I'm in chains or defending the gospel, whether I live or die, whether I come and see you or not, which is one of the, the tensions in Philippians. He so desperately wants to see them, but either way, they're connected. Whether I have plenty or whether I, or whether I lack. The point is simple. Enoughness is something that happens not on the outside, but on the inside. And so, how do we cultivate inner enoughness? And how do we resist, push against that complexity that keeps us always longing for more? Well, I'm glad you asked because I wanna end there. And um, I wanna give you just a list of a few things. I'm gonna put them all up on the screen at one time and not because you need to do all these before you can get an A in the class. It is so that you can look at some of the options and pick one and, and see where God is speaking to you today. And this comes from Richard Foster's book on, on um, simplicity. And I think uh, it is a pretty trustworthy source and some things to think about. And I would just wanna roll through them with you. Uh, so one way of thinking about this is buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. And how much of our, of our debt and how much of our stress is because we feel like we need to buy fill in the blank. Because there's some kind of social pressure to do so. The question is not whether you have stuff. Part of the question is whether you enjoy the stuff that you have. And, and some of us are not because it's not really about this inner holistic wholeness. It is about some external pressure that we feel that will never, ever, ever be satisfied. Just, it's just impossible. You will never meet everyone's expectations and you shouldn't try. So buy things for their usefulness or their joy or the story that they have rather than their status, just a way of thinking about it. Second, reject anything that produces an addiction in you. 
and addiction is anything that uh, gets you in a compulsive behavior. Social media is doing this to us through the, um, the dopamine hits that we're getting through those, those connections or those fake connections that we're having. And so I realized this is happening with me. I was going to Facebook when I was bored and I worked with my, with my coach on my morning routine um, in the last couple weeks and was noticing that I was going to Facebook early in the morning. And my challenge with that is that there is, and probably for you, there's always a piece of that that's good, right? Like, I keep up with you folks. I know what's going on in so many people's lives. And so what I decided to do was to take that off my phone. If I'm gonna check Facebook, it's gonna be on my computer only and at work. If it's for work, then I'm gonna do it for work for about 10 minutes. And I've done that about twice this week and the week before. Uh, but here's what I noticed why I'm bringing it up. Because I realized I was going to my phone and I was, I was doing it. My hands were operating disconnected from my body, trying to get to Facebook, trying to get to that, that little hit. That's a, that's a compulsive behavior. And we, we're, our modern society is filled with them. And there's a lot of shame around addiction. Uh, and there doesn't need to be. We live in an addictive society. And it's keeping us stressed. So let's reject things that are producing addiction in us. And let's get help. And some of us will need more help than others. It's, I needed actually a coach to say, okay, I'm going to take this off my phone. And he asked me every day, by the way. He got up in the, the, the screen of the Zoom call and he said, all right, do you wanna have to look at this face and tell me that you didn't do what you told me you would do? And I said, no, sir. Um, we, we need people to help us with addictive behavior. And that could be a whole sermon, but just tuck that away. Uh, develop a habit of giving things away. And this is the whole generosity culture that we cultivate here. Part of our life together is that we remind ourselves weekly that we are here to give, not to get. And that becomes a powerful shaping force in us as individuals and as a group. We begin to live into something different. We get to be a part of what God's doing together. Uh, so th that can be small acts of anonymous giving. It can be uh, cultivated acts of intentional giving, but just learn to give things away. Um, reject the endless cycle of new and improved gadgets. Pastor Lewis asked if we could take this off the list. <laughs> because here again, we live in a world that, where you need gadgets, right? Uh, and the, but the new and improved thing is always out there and it's endless, right? So just an, another thing to think about. This one I like, learn to enjoy things. Because really what we're talking about ultimately is enjoyment here, right? Learn to enjoy things without having to own things. And, and, and as you think about how many things there are that we don't have to own to enjoy, what a world we live in. By the way, I, I feel like in the summertime, you, you can own a cantaloupe and it's not very expensive and you get, you're eating like a king. I mean, it's just like the best thing in the world. So they don't, it could be that you can, you can enjoy things without having to, them having to be expensive. They can be simple things. But the story I think about, I heard a pastor once talking about, he was on his morning walk. It was just a little subtle thing, but he noticed his neighbor had this really, um, really just really cute uh, sign with their um, house number on it out at the road. And he would go by it every day and he would say, well, I just like their sign. I just think that's so neat. I gotta get me one of those. And how many of those uh, little, that, that little uh, transition happens with all of us? Oh, I gotta get one of those. They have one, I want one. And uh, he said he, he was doing that. I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to get one of those for weeks and, uh, on his walk. And, uh, and, and he did that one day and he felt like God said to him, hey, can you just admire it without having to acquire it? 
And so think about that. What can you admire that you don't have to acquire? It's just, it's just like free joy, right? It's just like free enjoyment. Ah, simple. Develop a deeper appreciation for the creation. Every person, when you ask them, when, when do you feel close to God? Almost everybody says in nature, right? Uh, except when it's 100 degrees outside. Uh, and this week, when it was 100 degrees outside, I got to go to Camp Lucon for a couple days, uh, and they uh, got a grant to teach children, wait for it, fly fishing. And they needed someone to teach. <laughs> That's me. So I went up the first day, and, um, and they got a grant to buy fly rods, and I went, took five children, five youth, out into the yard at Lucon and um, taught them 10 and 2 fly fishing without hooks, by the way at first, and, um, and I was nervous about, you know, these, these children, these young people don't have a lot of experience with this kind of thing. Would they get it? Would they enjoy it? And, um, would, and one of them literally just picked it up like that. It's amazing. Uh, there is an unforced rhythm of grace, by the way, to fly fishing. You can't force it. You can't whip that line or the, the thing falls apart. There's an unforced rhythm to that. And so on the second day, believe it or not, in just just a few hours, we had five young people with their fly rods sitting over the lake, and the speed of life just slowed down. You know, in the ADD, hyper-connected culture, there were young people sitting at the lake, and two or three times in that, that day, they weren't catching fish, and they weren't going anywhere. Uh, one of them would turn to the other and say, it's just so peaceful. The final point up there is to reject anything that breeds oppression of others. What we're talking about is not having so much that other people lack. And in God's economy, we can reject the lie that some people just are gonna have less and, and so we get to have more. We're pushing against that. And I think that's important uh, in the ways that we do our life together. And simplicity brings us to that. We don't, we get to the point where we're not, it's not that we're lacking things. It's not like we're so great because we're giving up things. We don't need things because we found real joy somewhere else. And that's where we wanna end today. I'm gonna invite our musicians forward. And uh, we're going to pray and create a moment of prayer as we're doing in this series that you and, and we together might find real joy in the simplest of things, in God's presence with us here, in our presence with each other. As we think about the world as it swirls around us, our act of resistance is to take a deep breath and know that God is good and to act out of that place, live out of that place. And so may that happen among us this morning. We're gonna sing a song, uh, just a verse of a song, and then I'm gonna lead us in a prayer. And as we pray, I would invite you to look at that list, uh, if we could put it back up on the screen, uh, and uh, think about what God might be calling you to do, the step that you might take to, um, to act um, in an act of resistance this week, uh, in an act of simplicity. So we're going to sing, and then I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll sing again. Uh, let us pray. And turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look for in his wonderful face and the clear.
you would, just take a deep breath and uh, enter into a moment of prayer. This is um, an Easter prayer by Walter Brueggemann. God, on our own, we make conclusions that there is somehow not enough to go around, that we're going to run short, whether it be of money, of love, of grades, of stuff, of relationships, of years, not enough of life. And that we should somehow seize the day, seize the goods, seize our neighbor's goods because there's not enough to go around. And in the midst of our perceived deficit, you come. You come giving bread in the wilderness. You come giving children at the 11th hour. You come giving homes to exiles. You come giving futures to the shutdown. You come giving Easter life to the crucified dead. You come flesh in Jesus. You come as the Holy Spirit. And we watch while the blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor dance and sing. We watch and we take food that we did not grow and life we did not invent and future that is gift and gift and gift and families and neighbors who sustain us when we do not deserve it. Grace. It dawns on many of us rather late rather than soon that you give food in due season, that you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. By your giving, God, would you break our cycles of imagined scarcity? Would you override our presumed deficits? Would you quiet our anxieties of lack and transform our perceptual field to see abundance? Mercy upon mercy, blessing upon blessing. God, would you sink your generosity deep into our lives? That your muchness may expose our false lack, that endlessly receiving we may endlessly give, so that the world may be made Easter new without greedy lack, but only wonder, without coercive need, but only love, without destructive greed, but only praise, without aggression and evasiveness, all things Easter new, all around us, toward us, and by us, all things Easter new, until you finish your creation and that we find ourselves with you lost in wonder, love, and praise.